with our study of the chronological life of Jesus, we are looking in Matthew 10 at the instructions our Lord gave the twelve as he sends them out on this rather limited mission into the cities of Israel to announce that the king is here, the Messiah is at hand, and his kingdom about to be revealed. We look, first of all, at the first section from verses 5 through verse 15 that deals primarily with that immediate mission. He tells them where to go, where not to go, what to do, what to say, how they're to go, gives them everything they need as far as the mission at hand. And then, as we saw last week, starting in verse 16, the scope widens. No longer do we have just the limited mission to the cities of Israel in view. Now we see a broader picture of the fact that they are in fact sent out into a hostile situation. He describes it in verse 16, I'm sending you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. I can't imagine a more hostile, a more uh, a more opposition than to describe the situation like that. What he mentioned in the first section is the possibility of opposition, and in the second section, the possibility becomes the certainty of opposition. They shall be hated. They will be scourged. They will be brought before kings for his name's sake. Brother will hate brother. Verse 23, notice, when they persecute, not if, Not perhaps, but when they persecute you in this city, flee unto another. And now we come, starting in verse uh, 33, to the end of the chapter, at uh, the concluding remarks, and that is what we'll take as our text this morning. Actually, starting verse 32, Matthew 10, 32 through 42. Jesus continues, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father who is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am not come to send peace but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. In this concluding section, I would have you notice that in verses 32 and 33, we have presented to us from the words of our Lord the necessity of identification with Christ. Then in the verses from 34 through verse 39, we have presented to us the cost of identification with Christ. 
And then in verses 40 through 42, we have given to us the reward of identification with Christ. So those are the three sections we're going to look at this morning, beginning with the first, the utter necessity of identification with Jesus Christ, seen in verses 32 and verse 33. Now, if you put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples at this point, you've been listening to all of this. And I'm sure at the very beginning when it is, you know, becomes clear to you that you have been picked. I mean, Christ chose you. I mean, he had a bunch of people he could have chosen, but he chose you. You're one of the twelve. One of the inside group. There's others that didn't make it into that group, you see. And then you learn that you have been singled out for some special privileges. To you is given the power to heal, to cast out devils, and according to our Lord, to raise the dead. Pretty hot stuff. To you has been given the privilege as well of going throughout the cities of Israel and announcing the appearance of the kingdom of heaven. To declare to the people that the Messiah, the long looked for, hoped for Messiah, is now making his appearance. I mean, don't you begin to see that you would begin to think you're pretty hot stuff? And then you listen to the fact that, well, not everybody is likely to receive this message. And in that case, you are to wipe the dust of your shoes off against them as a testimony and go on somewhere else. And you say, well, okay, fine. So it will be that not everybody will be overjoyed to hear the message that I bring to them. And then you go a little further and he begins to talk in terms of scourging, being brought before kings. Beaten, whipped, hated, your own family rising up against you, being chased out of one city into, and you say, whoa, hold on here. Uh, You know, I don't remember volunteering for that. Uh, You know, the preacher just said, anybody want to go to heaven here today? And I went for it. You know, I just remembered saying, yeah, I want to go to heaven. I want my sins forgiven. I don't remember any of this talk about scourging. Beaten, whipped, chased, persecuted. I, you know, I, I'm not sure I'm ready for that. I think I will be a secret disciple. I think I will be glad to go to heaven. I'll be glad to have my sins forgiven. But I believe that I will identify myself with Christ when it is convenient. When it's easy. Uh, when it's popular. When it's safe. But outside of that, I'll keep my big mouth shut. If it's going to get me in trouble, then I will just sort of blend into the background, you know. I will not be out there on the cutting edge. I'm not going to put my neck on the chopping block. Now, would that not be what you would think? I mean, I know my heart. Wouldn't that cross your mind? Wait a minute here. Uh, You know, I thought this was, uh, you know, I thought I was being singled out for special privileges and special treatment. And indeed you were. (laughs) You're being singled out for persecution. You remember as Jesus taught, as we looked into the words of Jesus last week, that he's come into this world as an alien. He's introducing strange ways. And he says, the world's going to hate you because it hated me. I'm not of the world and neither are you. I've chosen you out of the world. 
You're going into a hostile situation. In fact, again, the words, as hostile as it can get. A sheep in the midst of wolves. I mean, again, I've got some experience in this matter. I don't know if we've got any other sheep herders in the congregation. But I'm telling you what, I've seen a sheep in the midst of wolves, and it's not a very pretty sight. The sheep is not going to last long. He's a goner. He has no defense. He's helpless, hopeless. And Jesus said, that's how I'm sending you out. And he says, now don't fear them. (laughs) Don't be scared of them. All they can do is kill you. Well, that's good news. (laughs) All they're going to do is kill you. Oh, he said there's something worse than that. Don't fear them. Fear the one who can kill both soul and body. Fear God. Fear the one. He's the one you better fear. All these folks can do to you is kill you. Now, I know my own heart well enough to say that I think I would be thinking something like, well, I think I'll just keep my head down. I'll just keep my big mouth shut. And, you know, when it's safe, I will open it and I'll let people know I am I belong to Christ and He is mine. And when it's not safe, I'll just sort of blend into the, the locals, you know. And it is in that context that our Lord says, You deny me before men. And I, you want, we seen standing on the promises. Here's one you can stand on, folks. I will deny you before my Father. You say you don't know me, I will one day say I don't know you. And the context, by the way, Luke's account of this has him saying this, I will deny you before the angels. It seems to look forward to that eschatological day of the judgment. When the angels are doing the reaping, separating the wheat from the tares, and the angel grabs you by the neck and says, Lord, what about this one? And you say, Lord, Lord, done many, cast out devils, prophesied in your name, done many wonderful works, and he says, I don't know him. Don't know him. And you're cast into the fire. No, this is one of those promises. You will not confess me before men. I will not confess you in that day. Now, I would have you notice that this judgment, by the way, is not an examination. It's not Christ looking over and saying, well, I know that could be one of mine. Let me look him over real good. One thing I learned about sheep, I knew instantly which was my sheep and which was not. I had them all named. I knew them by name. Literally, as Jesus says, he knows his sheep in John 10. I had names for them. There's horns, and there's half horns, and there's skittish, and there's black face, and white face. I know, I wasn't very original. Come on. You know, give me a break here. It wasn't very original, but I had them all named. And I knew instantly if somebody in the night had snuck a sheep in there, all I had to do was just glance at it, and I would know that's not my sheep. I didn't have to look it over. I didn't have to study it. Instantly, I either recognized it or I didn't. And that's what is being indicated here. He either knows you or he didn't. And it really doesn't matter in that day how much you say you know him. The determining factor of heaven or hell depends on whether he will admit he knows you. You say, but I know him. That's great. Does he know you? Will he own you in that day? Will he say you're one of mine? Well, he says, it will be those who confess me before men that I confess before my Father 
who is in heaven. He does know his own. Remember the letter to Pergamos in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, where he speaks of Antipas, his faithful martyr, who had died there in their midst in earlier days. And as I've told you, we have not one idea who Antipas was. Church history is silent. No one knows who this man was. It really doesn't matter that you and I don't know who he was. The thing that matters is Jesus knew who he was. My faithful martyr. He knew him. And that's all that matters in the end. You say, well, is this some work? Is this some... Um, what shall we say, condition that is placed on salvation, that it's not enough to believe, I must also confess Jesus before men. It is what I would call a consequential necessity, a necessity after the fact, that if you are the sheep of Christ, you must be identified with Christ. He puts his mark, his brand upon his sheep. They know him and he knows them. And without that relationship, without that identification, there is no salvation. It is not a matter that, well, you're almost saved and if you'll do this, you can be a little more saved and so forth. It is simply this is the essence of what salvation is all about. That I own him as mine and he owns me as his. And you'll notice, I don't know how else you will interpret these words. You can put your slant, you can try to dehorn them, defame them. By your particular theological slant, all I know is I read these words and I tremble. Verse 32 and 33. This sounds like, uh, you know, the lady that says she didn't believe anything in the Bible that wasn't in red. Well, folks, this is in red. This is right out of the mouth of Jesus. I don't know how else to interpret them. So first of all, we are faced with the absolute necessity of identification with Christ. And that leads us into the second section in, starting in verse 34, my mouth still isn't working right. My mind's at one speed, my mouth at another. I'm still clogged. I'm 100% better than I was last week, but still not, not quite right. So y'all, please excuse me this morning. But starting in verse 34, we have the cost of identification with Christ. You know, we often hear that Jesus came into this world to bring peace, especially at Christmas time. You know, he's the Prince of Peace and all of this. And he did. He brings peace with God. He brings peace with the realm of heaven. He brings peace with God's people all over the earth of every nationality, kindred, and people, and tongue. But my friend, the same Jesus that came to usher in the kingdom of peace with God came to declare war on this world. He is, as I mentioned, an alien And I mean that in the literalist sense, an E.T., an extraterrestrial. He came from heaven. He kept saying that. I'm from God. I'm from the Father. I came into this world. I'm not of it. You're from beneath. I'm from above, he said. And he came to introduce a kingdom that is absolutely antithetical and opposite the kingdom of this world. Does everything backwards. Upside. In fact, that wasn't that the route of Paul when he came into Thessalonica. They said, these that have turned the world upside down have come here also. And my friend, that's what Christianity does. It, it turns the world upside down. Or as O.J. Wimberly says, the lady that kicked over the bubblegum machine as she was checking out of Walmart. Says, you want to create chaos. 
This lady was uh, checking out of Walmart and slipped and fell and kicked over the bubblegum machine. It scattered bubblegum all over the... Well, that was his way of describing the, uh, the chaos of the moment. Well, my friend, that's what Christianity does. Remember, being down in a village in Mexico about ten years ago, south of Tustepec, Brother Alfredo Arce, and uh, we were sitting and meeting with a couple of men in this small little village, and they were telling us of the problems that they were running into. They were trying to get a situation where one of the students could go into the village and hold services, but the village leaders had forbidden them to do that. They said, now, if someone lives here in this village, wants to conduct religious services and so forth, that we'll let them do it. But we will not have people from the outside come in and teach in our village because that would cause division. Now, I'm sitting there listening to all of this, and it dawned on me, you know what? They're right. I mean, I wish I could say, well, Christianity can come into this village and everybody will live happily ever after. The point is, as Jesus is saying right here, Christianity causes trouble. It stirs up trouble. He said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. There are going to be battle lines that are drawn and not along the lines that historically battle lines are drawn. Geographical lines, political lines, economic lines. In this case, the line will go right down through a family. And there will be people on each side of that battle line at war with one another. In other words, can you imagine in the the, the psyche of Israel, that's an unthinkable thing. I mean, we can imagine being at war with those Philistines or those Ammonites. You know, the great Gentile unwashed out there. But what Jesus is saying is that my kingdom, the lines of this kingdom will go right down through the marriage bed. Separate wife from husband, father from son, mother from daughter. It's going to cause trouble. And by the way, just follow Paul's journey. He stirred up trouble everywhere he went. Especially once the gospel began to take effect. Look what happened in Ephesus when the silversmith got on the uproar, got the burr under their saddle. Because the gospel began to cut into their business, cut into their idolatry, cut into their sin. And they went on the warpath. Do you see, that's exactly what has happened, and that's what will happen when true Christianity comes upon the scene. Now, I shouldn't bring this up with Sammy sitting here, but uh, being the good Texan that I am, I remember the story of the Alamo. Do you all teach the story of the Alamo? You do? Okay, I'm just wondering. I wonder how it reads in your textbooks. You know, in Texas, we have a completely different outlook on the Alamo. It's a wonderful, you know, shrine of Texas independence and all this. But the story is, before the fall of the Alamo, William Travis, the colonel there, the night before the final assault, drew a line with his sword in the dirt. And those 180 men standing over there crossed the line, and he says, if you'll fight to the death with me, cross this line. And the story is all but one of those men crossed that line and by doing so says, yes, we'll fight to the death. My friend, Christianity draws a line in the sand. Jesus comes and draws that line and says, you're either for me or you're against me. 
and to be with me, to be for me, you must leave where you are. You must turn your back on that kingdom to which you belong, and you must join me over here on this side of the line. You can't be on both sides at the same time. You can't straddle the line. You can't be over there and over here. To be here, you've got to leave there. And you begin to see where the cost of discipleship arises. It's not a cost to being a Christian in the normal sense like the admission cost to get into an amusement park. You know, to be a Christian, I've got to pay my, uh, you know, buy the ticket up front. No, it's not that kind of a cost at all. It's a cost in the very nature of what it is to be a Christian. Because if you're going to be in His kingdom, you can't be in the kingdom of this world. To have Him as your Lord, you've got to to bow the knee to Him. You can't bow to anybody else. Do do you see the point? It's either there or here. And you've got to cross that line. You're either for me or you're against me. And therein lies this high, high cost. And Jesus describes it as a man bearing his cross. That's a vivid picture. I've... uh, Spoken in the Monday night sessions, we've talked about this at length. To give you just a brief synopsis, I don't think they're thinking at this point about his cross. That hasn't happened. They don't know he's going to die on a cross. But as Galileans living in Roman-occupied territory, they no doubt had seen the sorry, sad, pitiful sight of a man bearing his cross on the way to the site of his execution. Now what did that mean? When Jesus says to be my disciple, if you do not bear your cross, you are not worthy of me. What did he mean? What's going on in the life of a man bearing a cross? Well, let's just put it very briefly. He ain't coming back. You understand? He's already said bye. He may be married, but he might as well not be. He may be rich, but he might as well not be. He's already been separated from everything we say that this world makes life worth living. It's already gone. The man who's bearing the cross is a dead man walking. And what Jesus is vividly portraying here is to be his disciple, you must voluntarily pick up that cross. You must embrace that which kills everything in this life that we say makes life worth living. Relationships, money, prestige, position, it must all be forsaken. And our one goal in life becomes to follow Jesus. It may mean that our own family turns against us. Our father and our mother disown us. Our children hate us. It may mean that we lose everything, every possession that we hold in this world. It may mean that we are counted as dung. The off-scouring of all things, the trash, the garbage of this world. But the man who follows Christ... As Paul in his own testimony in Philippians 3 says, I've counted all but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything I had, I lost it all. 
And you say, oh, Paul, what a terrible thing for you to have lost all of that good stuff. And you know what Paul will say? I count it but dung. It's nothing but manure. It's masquerading as life. Masquerading as blessing. It was nothing that I've forsaken. I've given up worthless deeds, the wampum, the trinkets, the jewelry of this present world. I've lost the trash to know the excellency of the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. I have lost life, but I found life. And that, of course, is what Jesus goes on to say. He that finds his life shall lose it. But he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. That is that paradox of Christianity. We try to water it down. We try to veneer it over, sugarcoat it. Saying, well, you know, you can have life and you can have your life too. You know, that Jesus really came to give you more life. To add life to the life you've already got. You say, well, I've got a pretty good life. You know, things are going pretty well. And I think most of us feel that way, don't we? I mean, you know, we're not miserable. We've, we're doing pretty good. We're pretty happy. But we could be a lot happier. We could have a lot more. And so Jesus is presented to our generation and our culture as He who would give you more life. To take your life and make it better. To give you a new and improved life. My friend, Jesus doesn't come to give you more life. He doesn't give you life to. He gives life instead of. New life. His, his life. And therein lies the cost. You can't live your life in His life too. You see, in the very nature of things, if I'm giving you the gift of life, you can't live two lives. To gain the life that He gives, you've got to lose the one you've got. You say, well, preacher, why do you make it so tough? I'm not making it. I'm just saying that's the way it is. That's, it's sort of like saying when two people ride a horse, only one can be in the saddle. You may not like that, but folks, that's just the way it works. Do you understand? That's just the facts of life. That's the way it happens. And so it is in the life that Jesus gives to gain the gift of life. We lose the life we have. But oh my, what we gain, what we experience in Jesus Christ. Do you think Paul, I mean, look at his life. Talk about a mess. Beaten everywhere he went. Whipped. Sent him to, you know, send him to Ephesus. They go on a right. Send him to Philippi, they put him in jail, put him in stocks. Send him to the Jews, they beat him, and we know of what he says five times, forty stripes less one. Put him on a boat, it sinks. Do you understand? Everywhere he went, it's just one problem after another. Do you think for a moment he would have swapped what he had for what he used to have? Do you think when he stood at the end of his life, he said, you know, I made a bad deal back there on the road to Damascus. I should have just kept on being old Saul of Tarsus. Would have made it to the top by now. And instead, look at me. 
I've lost everything. Here I sit in Nero's prison. Every friend of God has deserted me and turned their back on me. And I'm headed out of town to have my neck laid on the chopping block and my head separated from my shoulders. Do you think Paul would have said, Poor Paul, boy, I made a bad deal back there on that Damascus road. I'll tell you what he says. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me in that day and to all who love His appearance. You'll say hallelujah that old Saul of Tarsus died and Paul the Apostle took his place. And then we come to the rewards of this identification. In verse 40, there's a chain here that I hope you will see. Jesus is sending these men out in His name on his mission, with his message. The apostles are being sent out, you see, as Jesus' personal representatives. They're doing his work. They're going where he tells them to go. They're saying what he tells them to say. And what he is saying is that since that's the case, for a man to receive you, that is to hear you and listen favorably to what you say, to listen in faith, to what you're saying is the same is the equivalent of the man hearing me it's as if I were standing there saying these things when you stand there if you're saying what I'm telling you to say and you're going out at my instigation then for them to receive you is to receive me and he that receives me receives the one who sent me I've been sent to remember I was bring to you his message to listen to me and believe it is to believe him and now I send you forth with my message, and to receive my, my message is to receive me. You see the chain here. It's, it's much like we send an ambassador. The President of the United States may send a message, say, to the Premier of Russia. He delivers the message for the President. It's the President's message. And therefore, it is to be received or to be rejected as if the president himself were delivering it, even though he doesn't deliver it personally, he delivers it through the ambassador. What Jesus is describing here is that in this age, the gospel will in fact be propagated, be preached, but it will be preached by men who go forth in the name of Jesus, bearing his message. There is the old uh, adage, you know, don't kill the messenger. You know, we have bad news. And, and that's why, you know, when bad news was to be sent to the kings in the old days, nobody really wanted to take the news because the king gets upset and kills the messenger. You've always wondered, why, why is that the case? I always wonder, well, why are you getting upset at me? If I'm preaching the word of God, get upset at God. If I'm just, now if I'm messing this up, if I'm not declaring to you what God says, you have every right to be angry with me. But if this is the word of God, you may not like it, but don't get angry with me. I'm just the messenger boy. I mean, my job, I mean, I may sing you the message. You know, if it's like a telegraph boy, I may sing it to you. I may read it to you. I may hand it to you. But the last thing you want is me monkeying with the message, isn't it? My job is to present to you as clearly and accurately as I possibly can 
the very words of Christ himself. And I would say to you then that to receive that word, even though it comes through my mouth, is to receive the very words of Jesus himself. That's what he's preparing you for here. That the reward of receiving this message, as he so quaintly puts it in the next two verses, the reward is just as if Jesus himself were standing here. And you listened, and you heard, and you believed. And the consequences, if you reject, are the same as if Jesus were standing here, and you rejected. Hmm. That makes what we do on Sunday morning a little bit more than just an academic exercise, doesn't it? That we just go and take our religious pill, our once a week religious pill, get it over with, take our medicine, then go about our business. My friend, we come to hear from Christ himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And though we hear it through this old clay pot, this old dirt vessel, yet, my friend, if it is faithfully presented, it is the very words of Christ himself. And you're held accountable as if Christ were here in person preaching these very things. Paul in Second Corinthians 5 says, We pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. We are begging you as if Christ were standing here in person to be reconciled to God. Well, just to close, a couple of points. If you're expecting some visitation from Christ in person, some angelic voice to speak in your ear, some vision that appears before your eyes before you're going to believe the gospel, you're probably going to be sorely disappointed. You'll probably remain an unbeliever. Because we see here that it is Christ himself that sends the word of the gospel out through the medium, through the instrumentality of human instruments. You say, well, well, I'll, I'll believe this when I can find me a perfect preacher. You know, well, I'm sorry. I hadn't met one yet. I'm certainly not one. You'll probably be looking for a long time. The point is, Jesus is making it plain that he is laying this burden upon his followers that they go and preach and proclaim his message. Further, it is the fact that war has been declared and you're going to have to make peace with somebody, one side or the other. You can either be at war with this world and at peace with God. Or you can be at war with God and at peace with this world. One or the other. And you say, well, I've come to that point where I'll make that decision in time. My friend Travis, when he drew that line in the sand, they were already over there on the other side. He says, you're going to have to join me over here. In essence, the preaching of the gospel comes along and the preacher of the gospel draws a line in the sand and says, you're in Satan's territory. You're bowing the knee to the wrong master, the wrong Lord. You're in love with yourself, in love with sin. And here's the line. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will flee? Who will come? Who will bow the knee? And you say, well, what are the, what are the terms of peace? 
mean, generally you have these terms, don't you? What are the terms? Absolute capitulation. Absolute surrender. Absolute abdication of the throne of your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. That's the terms. And nothing less than that. Till that point, you're still at war. Till that point, you're still shooting bullets. But my friend, I don't know where you are today, but if you are outside of Christ, make no mistake about it. There's enmity between you and the Father. And that enmity, if it's not known now, will be known in the last day when you are forsaken as one of His. There is in the blood of Christ. Uh, I tell you, it's strange, isn't it? I will never get over this marvel, this mystery, that He who is the King, He who is the General of God's army, with His own blood, washes His enemies, cleanses them, makes them fit citizens. Of the kingdom of heaven. He who would rule you. Is he who has saved you. And washed you from your sins. But you cannot have him as your priest. To purge you from sin. While resisting his rule as your king. And your Lord, your Lord of your life. So where do you stand today? There is the line in the sand. Which side are you on? May I counsel you. There is a way of peace. There is a way of reconciliation. And it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ Himself. Come trusting Him. Surrender your life into His hands. Give it up. Give it up. You remember those story about the guy walking along the cliff and he slipped and he fell and he grabbed the little twig going out of the side of the cliff and he's about to fall and dark and it's raining and he's no he's just there for a second and it's about to pull loose and he cries up anybody up there a voice crawls back down and says yes I'm here he said will you help me he says yes I'll help you let go of the branch and he thinks about it a minute and he calls back up and says anybody else up there <laughs> you see that's our problem we hold in on Holding on to this life for dear life. And we know we can't hold on forever, can we? It's slipping away. It's about to tear loose. We're we're just here for a little while. We can't hold it. And what's the requirement? God comes and says, yes, I'll help you. I'll save you. But you're going to have to turn loose. Turn loose. Let's pray. Father... In the stumbling, bumbling words of this preacher, may your word be proclaimed. May your word be heard in power. May your word be believed. May you, Father, assault those who are your enemies, who are on the other side of the line, the battle lines that are drawn by the coming of Christ your Son. I pray, Father, that, Lord, you would tear down the obstacles. Tear down the resistance. Draw by the power of your Spirit effectually sinners to the sight of your Son. That, Lord, they might see this folly, this foolishness for what it is. The enmity of their hearts. That they have been warring with a clenched fist against the sovereign of their souls. And, Lord, may they throw down the instruments of their warfare. 
and may they fall at the feet of the God they have offended and may they plead for forgiveness and mercy for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of His blood that was shed at Calvary. But there is a, there is a way that those who have offended so deeply their sin of deepest dye, there is a way for their sins to be washed and purged in the very blood of Christ and they be white as snow. Lord, may You work in their hearts to bring them to the end of themselves, to the end of their rope, that they might cry out for a Savior. Lord, we have many, many upon our hearts today. Lord, in some of the prayer requests that have been mentioned these past Wednesday nights, so many dear to our people, family members, some of our children who know you not, who are outside of Christ. Father, we plead with thee to move in power upon their hearts. For we ask it, not for our sake, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but Father, for the sake of Jesus, your Son, for the extension of his kingdom in this earth, to bring glory to his grace. Lord, do it for Christ's sake. Amen.